would you be able to honestly say that your life is one of joy and celebration? Joy is the glad response of the Christian's heart to what God has done for us. And oh, he's done so much. The books of Moses record the first celebrations of a number of special Jewish holidays. You read about them in your lesson this week. Many people of Jewish heritage still observe these, along with several others that were instituted much later in Israel's history. Those that were instituted through the Mosaic Law include three major feasts, two special holy days, and then several periods of rest. We're going to consider each of these in the order they're covered in Leviticus. First, the Holy Day of Atonement, then the three major feasts, that second holy day falls within one of them, and finally, the periods of rest. Now, the Israelites were commanded to keep these observances so that the meaning behind them would be preserved for successive generations. Many had messianic implications. Christians have given some of these celebrations new names to better reflect the manner in which Christ fulfilled them. We celebrate out of gratitude rather than obligation. It's the joyful response of our hearts. The Day of Atonement was the most important and most holy day on the Israelites' calendar. Today, it's more commonly known as Yom Kippur. On October 6, 1973, Egypt and Syria launched an attack on Israel, hoping to gain back territory Israel had won in the Six-Day War a number of years earlier. The day on which they attacked was the Day of Atonement. Many Israeli soldiers were away from their posts observing Yom Kippur. After several days, they were finally able to rally. They fought back impressively, retaining the land that was encroached upon and even gaining additional land from Syria in the Golan Heights. Since this attack occurred on the Day of Atonement, it's given the day new significance for modern-day Jews. Now, on the Mosaic Day of Atonement, Five animals were brought to the tabernacle area, four of which would be sacrificed. Specific rituals accompanied each of those sacrifices, and the most significant of these involved the entering of the most holy place and the unusual ritual involving the fifth animal. The Day of Atonement was the only day of the entire year in which the high priest would enter the most holy place. Inside, the soul furnishing, the Ark of the Covenant, symbolized God's throne. Entering God's holy presence was very dangerous. Therefore, the priest was instructed to carry burning incense in first, in order that the smoke would screen the lid of the Ark, the atonement, co the atonement cover, and the priest wouldn't die. According to Jewish legend, a rope was tied around the priest's waist or legs, so that if he was struck dead, someone on the outside could drag him out, pull him out. Then the priest carried in some of the blood from the sacrifice, sprinkling it on and before the atonement cover. While the priest only offered one animal, a bull, for his own sins and that of his household, 
two goats were involved in atoning for the people. Lots were cast to determine which goat would be sacrificed and which would serve as a scapegoat. The priest put his hands on the head of the live goat and confessed the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, symbolically transferring them to the goat. This live goat was then led outside the Israelite camp, where it symbolically carried away the people's sins. According to the Mishnah, the written form of the rabbinic traditions, the scapegoat was pushed over a cliff to its death in order that it might not happen to wander back into the camp. The sacrifice of the one goat for the sin of the people and the carrying away of sin by the other are beautiful pictures of what the Lord Jesus did for us by his atoning sacrifice. By his death, he paid the debt owed for our sin, turned God's wrath away from us, and carried away our guilt. As Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. According to Leviticus 16, verse 15, when the priest sprinkled the blood of the goat on the atonement cover and in front of it, he was making atonement for the most holy place. He then repeated the blood splattering process in the outer room, the holy place, and then on the altar. Thus, from the inmost part of the sanctuary working outward, all areas of the sanctuary were cleansed from the pollution of Israel's sin, so that it might be a fitting place for God to dwell. This leads us to an important question and one that's widely debated. What exactly was the purpose of the Day of Atonement? I mean, for what or for whom was atonement made? There's no question that the Day of Atonement purified the tabernacle. The controversy surrounds whether or not the Israelites were forgiven of their sins, and if so, for which sins? As we read through Leviticus 16, it seems evident enough that atonement was made for the sins of the priests and of the people. Leviticus 16 verse 30 says the Israelites would be clean from all their sins. Verse 33 says for all the members of the community. And verse 34 says, atonement was made once a year for all the sins of Israel. However, when we compare what Leviticus 16 says and what other scripture passages say, the answer to the question suddenly is not so clear. As we saw in the last lesson, Leviticus 4 through 6 said that the sand and guilt offerings only atoned for specific unintentional sin. Secondly, Numbers 15, 30, and 31 states emphatically that there was no provision for sins that were committed knowingly. Furthermore, in addressing the Day of Atonement, the author of Hebrews states, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance.
So which sins were forgiven on this important day? All sins or only some? Scholars exist, some scholars insist the special atonement ritual averted the wrath of God for all the sins of the people for the past year, arguing that atonement for the high priest and the congregation is really more the focal point of the chapter than the purification of the tabernacle. The only limiting factor was a proper heart attitude of penitence and faith, which of course was also true for individual sacrifices on other days of the year. But other experts insist that the primary objective was to maintain a pure sanctuary. Although the priest also offered the sin, the sacrifice, for the sins the people had committed in ignorance, meaning unintentional, inadvertent sin. Well then, what should we conclude? A few things. First, it's possible that when Leviticus 16 says atonement was made for all the sins of the people, all the Israelites' unintentional sins is what was meant. That's possible. Second, if atonement was made for the entirety of the Israelites' sins on the Day of Atonement, the relief was tremendous, but very short-lived. By the following day, there was no provision for deliberate sins for another year, and unintentional sins still required ongoing sacrifices. Third, as so many Bible passages affirm, God has always looked at the condition of individuals' hearts. King David sinned willfully by committing adultery with Bathsheba, but was forgiven because... He genuinely repented. He wrote, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. So, at best, the old system of sacrifices was inadequate and awaited a permanent, perfect sacrifice. The Old Testament system of sacrifices was inadequate and anticipated the permanent, perfect sacrifice of Jesus. His death atoned for all the repentant believers' sin, deliberate and unintentional alike. The old system of sacrifices was a shadow of a good thing that was to follow, not the reality. From the beginning, it was obvious that the system of sacrifices was incomplete. God was revealing his plan of salvation gradually. Not only did these sacrifices have to be repeated again and again, Hebrews tells us that they did not cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. They just reminded them of their sin. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure none of us enjoys being reminded of our sin. In fact, many preachers and so-called Bible teachers find it easier never to mention the unpopular topic. They're quick to tell others how much God loves them. They're eager to talk about the riches that are ours in Christ. 
They write books about claiming God's promises and living a positive life. All the while, they ignore the fact that these good things only belong to sinners who have recognized their sin and repented of it. The gospel is the good news only after we accept the bad news that we are sinners. The truth of sin is at the heart of the gospel. Any honest person is forced to acknowledge the presence of sin in the world and in people's hearts. It just explains so much about life. Now I hope you would agree that our atonement is something we should celebrate. Now, not all celebrations are lively. Some, like Yom Kippur, are solemn. How can we commemorate our atonement? Well, one way is simply by regularly confessing sin. Is confession part of your daily prayer life? Second, we should express thanks to God every day for his provision of Jesus. How incredibly thankful we should be that we don't have to bring animal sacrifices day after day to atone for our sins. Thank him that our sacrifice also cleanses our consciences. Thank him that because Jesus has made atonement for you, you can go directly and confidently to God, to his throne room, and draw near to him. Another way we can commemorate Christ's atonement is by meditating on its meaning. Now, I admit I sometimes need help with this. So what I recommend is that if you've got access to Christian literature, as most of us do, read a good book on the work of Christ. Now, I know it may not be the kind of reading to which you're accustomed, but you'll undoubtedly be enriched and move to rejoice over what Christ has done on your behalf. I have no doubt you'll regret such an investment, that you won't regret such an investment. Finally, we commemorate Christ's atonement every time we share the truth of it with others. The Day of Atonement was the high holy day of the year for the Israelites. However, God put a number of other celebrations onto their calendar, as I mentioned, including the three great feasts. Once the Israelites settled in Canaan, all the Israelite men were required to make a pilgrimage for these national feasts to the place the Lord would designate, it says in the Law of Moses. Well, as it turns out, Jerusalem was this place. The Lord's temple was there. During these festivals, the population in Jerusalem would swell beyond the city's capacity. Leviticus 23 gives instructions for the three festivals in the order in which they occur on the calendar. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread occurred in the spring. The Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, occurred 50 days later in the early summer. The Festival of Tabernacles, covered at the end of the chapter, occurred in the fall. Let's begin with Passover. It's known today by Jewish people as Pesach, 
And it's the remembrance of the night on which the Lord took the Israelites out of Egypt. On that night, as you recall, the Lord put all the firstborn sons of Egypt to death, but he passed over the sons of the Israelites, who'd slaughtered a lamb, put its blood on their door frames as a sign of their faith and obedience. The first Passover was really the occasion of Israel's national independence. Therefore, the annual celebration of Passover and unleavened bread became the national celebration of independence for Israel until modern times, when May 14th became their Independence Day, honoring the day in 1948 when the state of Israel was established. The Passover was observed by sacrifice, followed by a meal with a very specific menu. At the time of the first Passover, the Lord instructed Israelites to commemorate the occasion annually and include a seven-day festival to the Lord in which they removed all yeast from their homes. This seven-day festival, called the Festival of Unleavened Bread, was closely linked with the observation of Passover. The names are used interchangeably. Now, included in that same time frame was also the offering of first fruits, which wasn't actually a separate feast, but just part of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. On the first day of the Sabbath during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Israelites presented a sheaf of their first grain from their barley crop, a, a wave offering. It was a way of acknowledging the Lord's blessing on the land that he gave them. According to the Gospels, Jesus enjoyed the Passover meal with his disciples the night before his death. Now, Passover was on a Friday that year, but Jesus, knowing he'd be crucified before sundown, celebrated the meal with the, his followers the prior evening. Today, Christians refer to that particular Passover meal as the Last Supper. Jesus changed the meaning of the elements of the meal, saying that the bread was the symbol of his broken body, and the wine indicated his shed blood. Jesus was crucified early the next morning, the day of Passover, the day on which the Israelites celebrated their redemption from slavery, the day they departed from Egypt. Paul wrote, Jesus is our Passover lamb. His sacrifice was the one to which all previous sacrifices pointed. Then Jesus rose on the third day, Sunday, the day after the Sabbath. According to Leviticus 23, first fruits were to be offered on the first day after the Sabbath during this week of feasting, the same day Jesus arose. Surely Paul had this in mind when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. The second of Israel's great feasts is the Feast of Weeks, alternately known as Pentecost. Today, Jewish people call it Shabbat, meaning weeks. 
These names are derived from the fact that this celebration occurred seven weeks plus one day after the day of first fruits. This is the only one of the three major feasts given in the law that did not commemorate a special Old Testament event, although Jewish tradition related it to the day Moses received the law from God on Mount Sinai. It was an early summer festival, concurrent with the end of the wheat harvest, and for this reason, it's also sometimes called the Feast of Harvest, and it's the Jewish National Festival of Thanksgiving. According to the book of Acts, after Jesus ascended to heaven, his disciples followed his instructions to remain in Jerusalem where they would receive his promised gift of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus. Acts 2, 1 through 4 tells us that it was on the day of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit arrived. Now, the month in which the third great feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, occurred was the first month in Israel's civic calendar, but the seventh month in its religious calendar. This was a very special month. Seven is a number associated with completeness or perfection in the Bible. The seventh month of Israel's religious calendar was filled with three celebrations spread out over the course of the month. The first day of the month, which would have equated to New Year's Day in the civil, civil calendar, trumpets were sounded to announce the new year, explaining why the celebration's called the Fe Festival of Trumpets. Today, the Festival of Trumpets is known as Rosh Hashanah. This day has always been closely linked with the Day of Atonement, which occurred in the 10th day of that same month. The days between the two have been traditionally considered a time of preparation for the solemnity of the Day of Atonement. They're Israel's two traditional holy days. Then we have the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths in Gathering, or today as Sukkot, occurring on the 15th day of the same month and lasting for seven days. It was the most prominent of the ancient celebrations and an especially joyful occasion. A welcome event after the somber day of atonement just a few days earlier. The most distinctive feature of the festival was the construction of temporary huts out of fruit and leafy branches in which the Israelites were to live during the week of celebration. It commemorated Israel's desert wanderings during which they lived in temporary shelters or booths, tents, tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles also celebrated the occasion of the ingathering of the autumn produce, marking the end of the agricultural season. Like the other feasts, the third feast also has New Testament significance. John 7 tells of Jesus attending this feast and teaching in the temple courts. By his day, the rabbis had added a tradition in which the priest poured out water on the altar. According to the law of Moses, the Israelites repeatedly grumbled about lack of water, you remember that, while they lived in the tents in the desert. Surely, finding water was foremost on their minds during those, those years. On the final day of the feast, according to the New Testament, 
Jesus stood and loudly proclaimed, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Perhaps nearby, as he spoke, the priest was pouring out the water on the altar. The great feasts of Israel reminded them about what God had done in their past. The feast of Passover reminded them of their deliverance from enslavement in Egypt. The feast of Pentecost, although it didn't have a historical link, reminded the Israelites of God's provision through their harvest that year. It was therefore a celebration of his work in their very recent past. The Feast of Tabernacles commemorated God's presence among them during their difficult years of tent dwelling in the wilderness. So Israel's feasts were intended to cause the Israelites to reflect on God's involvement and faithfulness in both their recent and distant past. Still today, believers should celebrate God's past work in our lives. We should celebrate God's past work in our lives. And as I said, there's so much to celebrate. Now, of course, this doesn't mean we should live our lives focused on the past. That would be detrimental to our spiritual growth. However, celebrating what God has done is an important reminder of what he's capable of doing today and tomorrow. The Israelites' feast reminded them of God's goodness to them, corporately and individually. In the words of one writer, nowhere is the continuity between the Old and New Testaments so clear as in the calendar. You see, the Jewish Passover has become the Christian's Good Friday. Their first fruits is our Easter, and their festival of weeks is our Pentecost. In all of these, we celebrate God's work in our lives. But perhaps there's also a more daily way we can celebrate God's work, sharing with others what God has done in our own personal lives is a wonderful way of bringing joy and celebration into everyday life. When you talk about your past with others, do you consciously highlight God's role in it? What part of your life story could help others consider that God is even greater than they imagined? Well, in addition to Israel's two special holy days and three great feasts, Leviticus 23 and 25 tell of a series of observances that revolve around the idea of Sabbath rest. As it turns out, not only was the seventh month a special month of celebration, every seventh day and every seventh year was also special. Additionally, after seven periods of seven years passed, an entire year of celebration and rest occurred, known as the year of Jubilee. The Sabbath day was a day of rest instituted by God at the time of creation. But as I said, the Israelites were also instructed to plant and harvest crops for six years 
and then allow the land to rest in the seventh year. Practically speaking, the soil was enriched by a year of rest. But far more importantly, this was a testing of the Israelites' faith in God's provision. Furthermore, in the Sabbath year, all debts owed to Israelites by other Israelites were to be canceled. Every 50th year, the year following seven sabbatical years, was to be a year of jubilee, a special year of celebration and liberation. As in the sabbatical year, the land was to rest. Since the year of jubilee followed a 49th year in the cycle, and thus also a year of rest, this meant two consecutive years of not planting crops. Wow, a real test to the faith of the Israelites. When the Israelites came into the promised land, various tracts were deeded to each tribe and family. In the year of Jubilee, all sold land was to revert to its original owner. Additionally, any Israelite who had, for one reason or another, come into a situation in which they presumably had already sold their land and retained debts, which had forced them to sell themselves, were to be freed in the year of Jubilee. Now, practically speaking, these laws had the effect of guaranteeing family stability and ensuring that no family became permanently fixed in poverty. Hebrews 4 reveals that Sabbath rest also has a spiritual significance. We mustn't strive to earn salvation, for it's only a gift of God. Similarly, our efforts to live the Christian life in our own strength are futile, for only Christ can live the Christian life through us. Salvation and successful Christian living ultimately come by resting, that is fully trusting in Christ's adequacy. God offers us rest in him. Aren't you so thankful? I can't say how thankful I am that he's offered me this wonderful rest. Now, resting in him doesn't mean we sit around all day and do nothing for the remainder of our lives. Of course not. But it does imply cessation from reliance on our own adequacy and trust in Christ's adequacy instead. This is first a theological matter. However, doctrine must also move from our heads to our hearts so that it becomes practical for us. And the implication here regarding resting in Jesus is that in daily practice, our lives should be filled with God's peace, a calm assurance that he's in control and we're in his favor. One of the biggest problems in the world today is that Christians, the people who claim to know, represent, and trust God, don't really know very much about the God they claim to be trusting or experience his presence, power, and peace in their daily lives. If we claim to know him, but live anxious lives, what does that tell others about our God? Is your view of God large enough that you trust him with the major things as well as the everyday details? 
An old adage says, when our problems are big, our God is small. When our God is big, our problems are small. There's nothing quite like the feeling of relief. And that's exactly what God offers us in Christ. It's what Sabbath rest is ultimately about. Rest from our worries, rest from our self-designed efforts, and relief from the pressure of being on our own. Now, I'd say that's something to celebrate. And as we learn from Israel's special observances, we should also be celebrating the forgiveness that's ours today, as well as God's work in our past. So much to celebrate. I have to wonder, do others see that our hearts are rejoicing in what Jesus has done for us? Are we celebrating?